On a warm English morning in July, Air Force chiefs from around the world gathered in a London conference centre to discuss, deliberate and debate the new realities of warfare. The occasion? The Air and Space Power Conference, which is held every year in the UK, giving senior government and military leaders the chance to discuss the strategic challenges currently facing the armed forces. But this year, the nature of the discussions was markedly different. Conversations that would normally have been talk of the latest generation of fighter aircraft or air-to-air missile were instead dominated by those underlying technologies that enable modern military operations. Technologies such as satellite communications, tactical data links, line-of-sight communications networks and cybersecurity capabilities. So what was the reason for this shift in focus? As our militaries become ever more reliant on digital technologies to gather and share information, potential adversaries are becoming more adept at disrupting and even denying access to those military networks. In the words of one senior commander, while the nature of war remains constant, the character of war is changing. Here's Penny Mordaunt, who at the time was the UK's Secretary of State for Defence, but was to lose her job the week after the conference, highlighting the importance of satellite assets at the event. When Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin first set foot on the moon some 50 years ago, operations in space seemed otherworldly. Yet today, our armed forces depend upon space to provide them with global communications, critical intelligence, surveillance, uh, and uh, navigation tools. While satellites underpin our national banking, transport and communication networks. And our competitors are doing all they can to disrupt access to these services. China has tested hit-to-kill interceptor missiles, increasing deadly debris and threatening every sovereign space enterprise. Russia is conducting sophisticated on-orbit activities, developing missile interceptors to threaten satellite and electronic warfare systems to jam satellite signals. And non-state actors and cyber hackers have the potential to scramble satellite data and manipulate Earth observation data to gain advantage. Welcome to Shepherd Studio's special series on Five Eyes Connectivity, sponsored by our partner, Viasat. Over the next three episodes, we will look at the changing face of modern warfare across the land, sea and air domains through the prism of three key technology areas. Satellite communications, line-of-sight data links and cybersecurity. We will hear from senior military leaders about the changing nature of today's threats and how unfettered access across the electromagnetic spectrum can no longer be taken for granted. We will find out about the vulnerabilities facing these critical technology areas, look at the work going on to protect military networks, and hear how the private sector is stepping in to help. In particular, we will look at the Five Eyes grouping of countries, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the UK and the US, and find out how prepared their militaries are when the connectivity they have become accustomed to is degraded or denied. And we will hear from our sponsor, Viasat, about how the private sector is stepping in to help militaries develop these technology areas further. But first, back to the Air and Space Power Conference in London to further set the scene. 
The event's focus on multi-domain operations, which we will dive into in more detail later, invited delegates to consider how the West would fare in any future conflict with Russia or China. Norway is among a number of NATO member states, as well as partner nations such as Ukraine, that continue to have communications networks hampered by the ongoing information warfare being employed by the Russian armed forces. So for Major General Tonje Skinnerland, chief of the Royal Norwegian Air Force, the potential threat posed by Russia was very close to home. Russia demonstrated their own military capability by deploying surface vessels and patrol aircraft, announcing an intent to do live firing training in the middle of our exercise area. They conducted numerous strategic long aviation missions, all of them seamlessly intercepted and shadowed by NATO QRA from several countries and from the US carrier group's organic air policing capability. A seamless cooperation that was very successful. In addition, there was repeatedly, repeated instances of jamming causing loss of GPS signals, which affected civilian air traffic in the northern part of Norway. We have also experienced an increase in influence operations and incidents in the cyber domain, targeted against Norwegian authorities and commercial companies in a number of different sectors. To sum it up, Russia had the ability and will to conduct multi-domain power projection in times of peace, conflict and war. In Norway, we see this as a new normal, which requires increased military presence readiness and more intel-driven dynamic operations for the Norwegian Joint Force. We have to adapt our defence planning accordingly. As Western militaries plan for future conflict against a peer competitor, strategic shorthand in this case for China and Russia, commanders emphasise the need for fully networked forces, operating on a mesh network that is both highly resilient and self-healing. Here's General David Goldfein, Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force. We're seeing the international order and threats change. While we still need to maintain campaign momentum against violent extremist organizations, the world is shifting towards new actors and more complex threats. And as we heard yesterday, state competition has returned. And it's taking on non-traditional forms, such as malign influence, in the information environment, and little green men acting as proxies. Second, within this complexity, the future of our economic information and security interests are becoming increasingly intertwined. And third, we're all wrestling with the accelerating advance of technology, a fact that introduces both new challenges and new opportunities. So as the State Secretary even mentioned, we're all investing in a wide array of technologies which will play key roles in how we advance our combat lethality. But modernization is not defined solely by hardware. It requires changes in the way we organize, train, develop, and then employ forces. Victory in future combat will depend less on the individual capabilities and more on our integrated strengths of a connected network available for coalition leaders to employ. An integrated and collaborative approach is central to unleashing the potential of multi-domain operations. 
So what exactly do we mean by multi-domain operations? In short, the concept defines how harnessing capabilities across all domains is key to gain decisive advantage, whether that is a military service acting independently or in a joint allied or coalition context. But as the concept gains traction, this increased emphasis on multi-domain military operations has a myriad of technological implications. Ken Peterman is president of Government Systems at Viasat, which is sponsoring this podcast. As he explains, the renewed focus on multi-domain operations is a recognition that there's a paradigm shift being experienced in information warfare, space and communications. We're seeing multiple paradigm shifts across this market sector and across this technology sector. Network-centric warfare was a fundamentally a recognition that connectivity and a communications capability that's assured and secure is a fundamental enabler for warfighter situation awareness, warfighter communications, effective command and control, effective battle management, effective use of resources. It was a huge enabler in uh, warfighter mission effectiveness and improvements in warfighter safety. Communications is the underlying fabric or the infrastructure which enables applications like situational awareness, command and control, and communications, blue force tracking to know where your, your friendly forces are, to know where the enemy forces are, and to be able to collaboratively engage in those forces in the safest way possible. I think that network-centric warfare was a recognition of the power uh, of enabling uh, forces to be more effective via assured communications. Uh, multi-domain, multi-domain uh, operations is a recognition that there's a paradigm shift being experienced after 40 years of 5i dominance in information warfare, space, uh, and communications. And we're seeing now this technology leadership shift uh, moving away from, like leadership is moving away from defense organizations that invented technologies like mobile networking, satellite communications, and cybersecurity. They invented these technologies to empower warfighters and make them able to be more mission effective and safer. But we saw this technology leadership transition to the private sector as the private sector began to invest much more money than defense organizations could. They invested much faster and they used agile development techniques and they used agile development processes to accelerate speed to market and improve and steepen the technology trajectories in these technology segments. And as this technology leadership shifted to the private sector, now you saw uh, satellite technology, uh, mobile networking technology, and cybersecurity technology accelerate at an unprecedented rate. Let's then look at those technologies underpinning the concept of multi-domain operations. In this episode, we focus on space and satellite communications, or SATCOM in military parlance. As a result of the upsurge in the electronic warfare threat, Five Eyes military services are now considering the use of different applications and technologies to avoid disruption to SATCOM. Options include a greater reliance on commercial SATCOM providers to hide in the noise of greater amounts of radio traffic. There is increased use of advanced, extremely high-frequency satellite systems aimed at providing survivable anti-jam and low probability of intercept or detection SATCOM connectivity. 
And finally, developments in on-the-move antennas to avoid interference and detection by enemy forces, as well as supporting more discreet operations. Here's Major General Stephen Whiting, who is commander of the 14th Air Force at US Air Force Space Command, explaining the importance of SATCOM and the space domain to operations. Uh, perhaps the most critical element to multi-domain operations is multi-domain command and control. And when we think about the attributes of multi-domain command and control, they argue for the very strengths that space bring us. So those three attributes for command and control uh, might be the ability to have situational awareness, uh, the ability to make rapid decisions, and the ability to uh, direct and control your forces. Now as airmen, when we think about situational awareness, we're not just concerned about uh, the, the view out to the horizon that we can see, or even out to the forward line of troops. We're concerned about situational awareness across the theater. And for decades, that has meant at a continental level, and more and more it means at a global level. And that's exactly what space enables us to do. Space allows us to legally fly over any point on the Earth, to look over that next hill, to look into that next country, to see what the threats are, what the opportunities for humanitarian assistance are, what the weather's going to be, what missiles are being launched. And so space helps us produce that situational awareness. When we think about rapid decision-making, of course, in a multilateral context, that implies a federated decision-making process across vast distances. That, that includes linking our national capitals. It includes linking our fixed military facilities. It also includes going to austere locations and linking up with forces that a month or a week ago didn't even know they would be in that location and don't have terrestrial infrastructure to plug into. And that's what space brings us again, the ability to operate free from terrestrial infrastructure, whether that's a carrier strike group going somewhere in the world or our deployed and expeditionary forces. And then finally, this ability to direct and control our forces. Of course, that's not just a top-down radio broadcast. We need that to be a, uh, a feedback loop where we're getting information from the tactical edge, uh, understanding what those units are seeing, and then engaging in a command and control relationship uh, that is robust. But to protect and foster this multi-domain command and control, military commanders need to focus on the entire electromagnetic spectrum. In one high-profile example, the US Navy has fundamentally changed the way it operates. And we will look at that service's approach to the electromagnetic spectrum in more detail in our third episode on cyber. But equally, in a heavily contested environment, against adversaries with sophisticated electronic warfare capabilities, access to satellite communications may not always be guaranteed. When it comes to networking across all domains, what commanders are looking for is what's described as information dominance and information availability. Here's Viasat's Ken Peterman again to explain more. When we look at multi-domain operations, one of the things I think we're realizing is that we're moving from operations in land, sea, and air, which have been the dominant domains for thousands of years. In fact, land and sea were dominant for thousands of years. The air domain came into play uh, in the early 1900s, and we saw the space domain come into play uh, about 50 years later. Uh, so we've had four domains in multi-domain operation that have been recognized probably for the last 50 years. What you're seeing now is the additional domains of electromagnetic spectrum and cybersecurity coming into play as additional warfighter domains in the multi-domain battle space. Uh, this, this changes the way uh, 
This changes the way defense organizations think. It changes tactics. It changes procedures. Um, it changes con-ops because these additional domains uh, have significant impact on land, air, and sea operations. So this multi-domain operation requires effective communications infrastructure to enable rapid command control situation awareness, and it has to operate at the speed of relevance. We see our defense customers talk about information dominance and information availability, so decision-making can occur at the speed of relevance. In the private sector, we look at that as real-time network visualization, management, and control to the individual device level so that we know what each individual device is doing at any point in time, what their connectivity, uh, uh, forward and return link connectivity is, whether they're experiencing electromagnetic effects like jamming, whether they're experiencing cyber attack and those kinds of things. And it's imperative that we understand and we have visualization of the network performance to the individual device level at, in real time so that we can support the, the warfighter demand for information, relevance, and decision-making in real time. Invariably, it is inevitable that the ability of Five Eyes nations to access military satellite communications will be threatened in any future conflict with a peer competitor. But, as Major General Whiting explains, this is no reason to accept anything less than full space superiority. We know that our networks and our space capabilities will be challenged, but we shouldn't accept that we're going to lose our space capabilities in the face of those threats. And this leads me to my second point, that space is a warfighting domain that's been said several times. Imagine in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s as the Soviets were developing ever more capable integrated air defense systems, if we had said, you know what, flying in those environments is going to be so difficult, we're just going to give up and we're going to tell our land and maritime teammates that they're going to have to figure out how to fight without air power. That would be ludicrous. Air power brings us too many advantages, so we set out to develop tactics, techniques, procedures, and con-ops like air land battle. We developed new kit at huge investment like the F-117, the B-2, the F-22, and the F-35, which have given us decades more capability in the face of those uh, integrated air defense systems. Similarly, I've been in the war games, I've been in exercises, I've been in planning conferences where Folks inside my own country and, and other uh, allied nations as well have said, you know, when we get into the deeper phases of the fight, we're not going to have our space capabilities. Those threats are too extensive, and we're going to have to figure out how to fight without space. Now, I certainly uh, do think we need to have resilient TTPs we can fall back on when, when our capabilities are challenged, but we should not accept that we will not have space deep into those fights. And so we must deliver the capability to operate when and where we need in space for the purposes that we need. And you'll notice that's half the definition of space superiority. The other half is denying our adversaries the ability to operate in space uh, when and where we so choose. And more and more as we think about a fight with a peer competitor, we are going to find that delivering space superiority at the beginning of that operation and fighting and maintaining to maintain that space uh, superiority will be absolutely necessary or all and everything else that we want to do will be at risk. So our terrestrial warfighters more and more, you will find in, in exercises and, and God forbid we ever get into uh, that fight, uh, that early on the target sets that we're servicing will help to produce that space superiority to enable that multi-domain command and control and, and allow us to fight the way that we so choose. Here, the private sector offers a number of lessons. 
While the Five Eyes community, in particular the US, has traditionally approached new military technology from the basis that any new capability will have to be invented in government R&D labs, today the private sector has often beaten the path already. We will consider this paradigm in more detail in a future episode. But for now, here's Viasat's Ken Peterman about how Five Eyes militaries can leverage private sector technology developments. We have a network with with, uh, millions of devices on it every day. We support a diverse array of users, subscribers, and use cases from high-profile government uh, uh, leadership to individual home residences, enterprises, businesses, commercial airlines, business jets, luxury yachts, merchant marine. We support a vast and diverse array of subscribers with a diverse array of use cases. And as a result, um, we've built a network of networks to assure real-time connectivity and assured connectivity across all that diverse diversity of use case. Uh, and we do that by assuring connectivity provi- by providing a network of networks so that, for example, in a satellite domain, uh, we operate satellites in geosynchronous orbit, but we're able to, and we're able to move subscribers among satellites that are operating at different frequency bands like KU and KA or MIL-KA. We're able to move subscribers from a geo orbital regime to a MEO orbital regime if, in fact, the MEO satellite networks better supports the use case of the individual subscriber. And, in fact, we're moving toward being able to move them to LEO uh, satellites in, in, in a low-Earth orbit uh, regime in order to be able to support use cases that require lower latency. So this network of networks in the multi-domain battle space uh, is critical because it sustains connectivity in all environments. It enables users to move, move among different networks, to operate on different satellites, to operate among different frequency bands, to operate on different waveforms, to operate at uh, and different ground infrastructures and different networking protocols. These different networks have different cybersecurity implementations. So being able to roam among these different networks not only allows you to support the use case optimally and be on the network that most optimally supports that use case, but it also enables users to have assured connectivity because there's strength in numbers. It enables assured connectivity because they can hide in plain sight among this array of different network choices. And it imposes significant cost and complexity on an adversary that's trying to identify where our military users are operating uh, and be able to, to attempt to disrupt or impede our ability to communicate and sustain communications. So a hybrid adaptive network of, of that employs multiple satellite constellations at different frequency bands is enormously empowering. The ideal, then, is an individual military subscriber who would be connected to multiple networks simultaneously and roam among those networks based on which best serves their mission. Ken Peterman uses the analogy of cell phones and the constantly upgraded networks that mobile phone users have access to. In many ways, that future-proofs our network so that our subscribers continue to have this continuum where they can ride the trajectory of this technology acceleration, this technology improvement, constantly getting 
better service, more secure service, and more reliable service as the technology improves. The analogy would be uh, your cell phone and your, and your smartphone, where it's rapidly moved from 2G to 3G to 4G to 5G LTE. And none of us as a subscriber had to invest in that infrastructure directly. We simply paid our monthly fee, and the competitive nature of the market brought forward these new technologies as fast as the market could do so, which was extremely fast in defense terms. And, and as a result, we all benefit from this constantly improving network that we're able to subscribe to. And uh, our defense forces have an untapped opportunity to do the same thing and to leverage these technology trajectories. And instead of fielding a military purpose-built system that provides a central, targetable point of attack for an adversary, our defense organizations can leverage this private sector technology acceleration and leverage this myriad or this array of network, this network of networks, in order to always have our warfighters connected with the best available cutting edge technology and be able to roam among all these different networks at any point in time. Uh, it creates resiliency, it creates assured connectivity, it improves security, and it creates a very difficult complex calculus on an adversary that doesn't know what network our forces are on at any point in time. We can actually do more than that. At Viasat, we're building the technology so an individual subscriber who might have multiple applications running on their personal device or on their warfighter device, that those individual applications can be split and routed over different networks simultaneously. So for example, if an individual warfighter is using a device that's streaming video, we can route that streaming video over a geo satellite in where the, the capacity uh, best supports that use case. We can slice other use cases that require low latency and route those over LEO. We can slice off different use cases that might be best served by a MEO constellation so that an individual subscriber, subscriber can be connected to multiple networks simultaneously in order to best support their use case. You can imagine how this changes the game from an, ad, from an adversary perspective who's trying to disrupt or impede uh, that individual warfighter's capability to, main, to maintain connectivity on the network. It's game-changing. To get a better idea of the satellite communication requirements of the Five Eyes community and how these needs are evolving in the face of current threats, we turn to the Canadian Armed Forces. Colonel Mark Parsons is Director of Land Command Information for the Canadian Army. We sat down with Colonel Parsons earlier in the year to hear about the importance of satellite communications to Canadian Army missions, and in particular, the investment in SATCOM on the move capabilities. So satellite communications is uh, highly important. Uh, when you consider that being in North America and any of the operations that we have are more than likely not going to be in North America, uh, there's different uh, aspects of satellite communications that you need, which is th that reach back. Uh, so that's actually uh, leveraged and controlled uh, centrally through the, uh, the Canadian government uh, in order to give us those dedicated satellite uh, channels to, to provide that Canadian-only reach back. Uh, to keep in contact with uh, with fields on the on the ground, from a what I consider that local regional type of communication. So when a battle group or a, um, a battalion goes into the field, we are used to uh, Wi-Fi services. We're used to uh, phone services everywhere. We go into austere environments. That's not always available. So you have to fall back to locally uh, run or, or 
I guess, a smaller portable sized uh, satellite services uh, to which we are leveraging for sure. Uh, down to uh, small detachments that are, are that are dealing with uh, with creating that part of the network. One of the bigger initiatives that we're working on right now is actually what we call sat, uh, satellite communications on the move. In the old days, about you know, a decade ago, you'd have to pull off to the side, set everything up, do your communications, pull everything down, and move on. Not very tactically sound. So a part of that is how do we integrate satellite communications while you're moving at very interesting speeds. Uh, into different and interesting locations uh, so that that uh, command and control is still being given. So that has been a capital project that has been introduced uh, for the Canadian Army. Uh, and we are, uh, we're, we're still rolling it out, still uh, identifying what's the best platform. And more importantly, what are the right vehicles in order to actually target this, uh, this capability to? And, and we're working with our industry partners and, the, and those that have won the, uh, the, the contracts to deliver those types of uh, capabilities. The scope of where we go as well is also interesting because as you go further north in Canada, it, you, you lose your satellite tech capabilities. So we're, uh, we're, we're definitely in partnership with other initiatives on how we deal with polar orbit uh, satellite uh, constellations, putting that into place so that we have full coverage, not only from a domestic perspective, but leverage that for, uh, for uh, expeditionary operations. And of course, then the balance of cost versus um, it's cost over convenience because satellite's easy because it's there, but very high on the, the cost. So we have to strike that balance as to exactly how we deal with that. The man in charge of balancing these requirements works for the Royal Canadian Air Force, which now oversees the provision of SATCOM for the Canadian Armed Forces. Colonel Cameron Stoltz is Director of Space Requirements with the Royal Canadian Air Force. Like many Five Eyes nations, Canada provides for much of its SATCOM needs through partnering with the US on its current satellite programs. Space capabilities have become essential to military operations and are crucial to our collective security and sovereignty. This is uh, particularly relevant in Canada, where we have a large land mass, a very large land mass, with a relatively small population that is uh, concentrated around our southern border with the United States, which means that uh, in our north and in our large, vast north, there's very sparse communications or very sparse population, uh, which makes uh, communications um, very challenging. Back, it's now, I guess, three years ago in 2016, our vice chief of the defense staff transferred the functional responsibility of space to the RCAF. It had previously been held uh, at the Central Command in a, in a joint area. We're now led by a Director General Space. And after that, after transfer to the RCF, we developed a Defense Space five-year roadmap, which lays the framework for the Defense Space Program for the Canadian Armed Forces. The reliance of militaries on space-based capabilities to carry out day-to-day -day operations is only growing and so it is in our collective interest to strive for stronger cooperation with partners and allies in the space domain. Canada has been partnering with uh, like-minded allies for decades, and this initiative is being operationalized through combined space operations to improve deterrence and enhance the resiliency of our space systems, while also ensuring continuing access to the space domain. Central to this partnering with allies for SATCOM capacity is Canada's participation in two US-led military satellite programs. The Advanced EHF Network and the Wideband Global SATCOM, or WGS, constellation 
Colonel Stoltz explains that with the fifth AEHF satellite recently launched into orbit, Canada is able to access the network through its protected military satellite communications program. So uh, with respect to the Advanced DHF constellation and the way we have accessed that through our protected military satellite communications project, we find that uh, secure and reliable satellite communications, uh, as you know, are essential for command and control of military operations. And that doesn't matter whether they're in remote regions in Canada or around the world. So our protected MILSATCOM communication project uh, is what ensures us access to that secure over-the-horizon communications in support of uh, Canadian Armed Forces operations around the world. The PMSC project uh, provides the Canadian Armed Forces with our protected global military satellite communications, essentially between 65 North and 65 South, and terminals uh, for our land, sea, and air forces. Now, what's important about uh, Advanced DHF is that it provides, um, it has a protected nature to it, which is unlike conventional communication systems, and it incorporates technical features uh, that are designed to overcome vulnerabilities to electronic jamming, interference, and detection. PMSC provides a number of enhancements over uh, the standard or the commercial uh, SATCOM and other military SATCOM capabilities as well, in that it includes guaranteed, survivable, protected, uh, secure, jam-resistant access that we uh, reserve for our highest priority critical communications. So when it comes to the uh, wideband global system or the WGS constellation, we actually implement that here in Canada through a project that's called uh, Mercury Global. And again, that, that leverages our buy-in or our uh, access to the US MOU that provides high bandwidth SATCOM in both X-band and uh, military KA band, again, to, to, global, to global users. We find with uh, the advances in military and information technology and the ever-increasing uh, bandwidth demands that the secure exchange of information with higher data rates between headquarters, formations, units, um, the whole gamut, I guess, is becoming increasingly uh, critical to the success of any modern military operation. One Canadian-specific requirement is the need for coverage at the far north of the country, an area the geostationary satellites in orbit cannot provide coverage to. Colonel Stoltz explains that with the Arctic region expected to become more heavily contested as areas begin to open up with the melting of the ice caps, Canada regards satellite communications to the region as critical sovereign capability. That's a huge uh, area within Canada that's uh, very limited access that we have right now just because of the sparsity of the, the population and the infrastructure in the north, as well as the, uh, the capabilities of, of the current geostationary satellites to reach that high. So we recognize that, uh, that shortfall right now as an outstanding uh, requirement for the, uh, the Canadian Armed Forces in order to, to be able to command and control on that area, to um, demonstrate sovereignty, all of those sorts of things um, require an ability to communicate throughout, um, throughout the entire reaches of Canada, right? Which goes right to the, to the very, to the very most uh, northern aspects of Canada. Because of that, we have initiated the Enhanced Satellite Communications Project Polar, or the Escape Project as we, uh, as we like to call it, and that will deliver this has a goal of delivering this Arctic communications infrastructure.
Specifically, the ESCAPE project will provide guaranteed, reliable, and secure access in both narrowband and wideband in support of operations in the Arctic. So the project itself, uh, right now, it will initially, it's planned right now, I should say, to come in line, initial operation capability, no later than 2029, with a uh, final operational capability, no later than 2031. So this is what's currently scheduled. And uh, we do recognize, though, that there is a current operational gap. So we're doing everything possible, and we will be doing everything possible to uh, to advance that timeline um, as much as possible as the project progresses. Uh, one thing I would also note that uh, because of the the northern aspect of this of this particular project, we're not the only country that uh, that operates in the north. So we have certainly received uh, interest from another uh, a number of our northern allies, and we uh, this will be uh, we we foresee this being an important part of of this project and uh, will obviously advance uh, that uh, level of participation and see what the outcome is as the project progresses. As new requirements such as this work their way through the various acquisition systems, industry is offering new business models and options for the military to tap into existing and planned satellite constellations. Indeed, if we look to the future of SATCOM, Militaries, agencies and industry players alike are considering a range of more cost-effective and efficient solutions that can provide support to end-users across air, land and maritime domains. As new requirements become finalised, industry is confident there will be increased scope for Five Eyes militaries to leverage private sector technology. Viasat's Ken Peterman reiterates the advantages of a multi-network approach where individual military users can operate on multiple networks simultaneously. Employing this network of networks, this multi-network enterprise from a connectivity perspective, essentially future-proofs our warfighters' uh, communications capability because we provide interoperability at the network layer, which means that as new networks and new satellites come available, and those might be at higher frequency bands like V-band, they may be and optical communications, they may be other things that we haven't even thought of yet. These additional networks can be readily incorporated in or bolted on to this hybrid network of networks architecture in order to take full advantage of that as that technology comes available. So there is an yet untapped opportunity for our defense customers to ride this private sector technology trajectory and have the capability to continually put this cutting-edge technology in front of our warfighter customers and make it available to them. That's why we think that new and innovative business models are needed as a companion to this new and innovative technology because buying these capabilities as a service instead of inventing them which was the what was required 40 years ago, uh, if our DOD or an MOD customers tapped into this private sector technology and bought it as a service, then you get you get to ride that technology trajectory in the same way we do in the private sector, where we might we might initially buy service on a 2G network, but then 3G, 4G, 5G LTE comes along, and our network provider automatically upgrades us to to, to those new speeds and new new capacities because they want to preserve 
our subscription and they don't want us to switch service to another provider. Okay, DOD and MOD have the same capability now as they can, they can buy as a service and at any point in time they can switch service providers. They might even buy service on multiple service providers to impose additional cost and complexity on an adversary that doesn't know which network they're operating on at any point in time. This is a significant paradigm shift that changes warfighter con ops and tactics. It empowers them like it never has before. It causes changes in acquisition and business models, whether we're talking about um, Canadian programs or whether we're talking about uh, UK programs like Skynet or whether we're talking about programs in Australia like 9102. I think all of these acquisition organizations are looking at how empowering these commercial technologies are, how affordable they are relative to past business practices, and, uh, and they're looking at new ways um, to do business that tap into this private sector technology opportunity. Beyond the increased capacity made available through the use of commercial satellite networks, one further advantage of what Ken Peterman describes as a satellite technology trajectory is the anti-jam characteristics of modern satellites and terminals. Viasat is currently developing its Viasat 3 class of KA-band satellites, which is expected to provide vastly superior capabilities in terms of service, speed and flexibility. Each Viasat 3 class satellite is expected to deliver more than one terabit per second of network capacity and to leverage high levels of flexibility to dynamically direct capacity to where customers are located. Ken Peterman explains further. I think Viasat has more capacity, satellite capacity on orbit than any other company or government in the world. And in a few, in a year or two, Viasat will have more satellite capacity on orbit than everyone else combined in all frequency domains and all orbital regimes. So I think that the game is changing dramatically. That's what I talk about in terms of the technology trajectory. It's also, this paradigm shift isn't just about capacity. You're seeing satellites move from large, expensive terminals in large uh, satellite beams from a coverage perspective to small terminals that operate at 100 times the data rate of these large, expensive, exquisite terminals. You're seeing thousands of transmitters on at a single time using a single frequency band. You're seeing uh, spot beams that are much, much smaller, uh, spot beams that maybe a, a modern Viasat 3 satellite has a 1,000 small spot beams. Uh, whereas uh, larger purpose-built systems uh, only have a few. And this imposes enormous complexity on an adversary because the anti-jam characteristics, the resiliency characteristics, the security characteristics, the, the opportunity for an adversary to do data collection at a ground station, uh, the opportunity to operate in the presence of a high-powered jammer, all of these things are dramatically improved with a Viasat 2 or a Viasat 3 generation satellite. This kind of emergent technology is essentially immune to ground-based jamming. It's essentially immune to ground-based data collection. It's, it's in, many, in many ways, it's essentially immune to a kinetic strike or, a, or disruption by, by, a, by a fiber or power outage uh, because it's a completely different architecture uh, than has been used before. And that's what I mean by uh, there being such an untapped opportunity for defense organizations to leverage these technology trajectories. They're, they're significantly better 
in a capacity and performance context, but what is really valuable to defense organizations is that they're significantly better in a warfighter context. They're better in this multi-domain battle space environment and significantly better 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times more effective in, an, in a uh, contested environment with, with high power jamming, uh, attempts at geolocation, uh, cyber attack, and those kinds of things. That's where the real power of this commercial technology lies. Back at the Air and Space Power Conference, the outlook from military commanders could be described as one of cautious optimism. General Goldfein said that the US Air Force had made great progress in developing multi-domain command and control and its role in modern warfare. For example, the Pentagon has set up a war fighting integration center to help make the hard choices about future investments. Choices that go beyond trade-offs between platforms, sensors and weapons, and instead look at integrating systems that allow commanders to close kill chains at a speed adversaries can never match. Multi-domain command and control is the most critical element of achieving future victory through multi-domain operations. But while the idea can be powerful, I found over the years that it can be a bit challenging to visualize how warfare can unfold simultaneously at speed and scale across multiple domains. And just as important to visualize where we need to go together as air and space chiefs to build the integrated and networked force we're going to need to deter, and if deterrence fails, to fight together and win. Multi-domain operations using dominance in one domain or many, blending a few capabilities or many to produce multiple dilemmas for our adversaries. While the nature of war remains constant, the character of war is changing. And perhaps, perhaps our adversaries will watch how we are operating and take pause. Because, you know, the age-old math equation of deterrence has not changed since the beginning of man-conflict. It is still capability times will, as perceived by the adversary. So if we are successful at causing our enemies to pause and question whether they can achieve their political objectives, perhaps that's what winning looks like in the age of hybrid warfare. Next time on Five Eyes Connectivity... We come back down to earth and look at the tactical communication networks available to military commanders and how they're being upgraded, enhanced and modernised to deal with the new realities of warfare. We hear about the ubiquitous Link 16 network and how this capability is being enhanced and upgraded. And we hear more about how the private sector is bringing its capability to bear to provide new advantages to military services. And that's episode two, next time on Five Eyes Connectivity, available now wherever you get your podcasts. The Five Eyes Connectivity podcast special was created by Shepherd Studio and produced by Tony Skinner in partnership with our sponsor Viasat. A big thanks to everyone who gave their time to support the project. Until next time. If you'd like to learn more about how the Five Eyes militaries are increasing satellite communications capabilities, you'll find a link in our show notes. 
where you can enter your details for access to bonus content, including more on how the Canadian Armed Forces plan to increase their access to SATCOM.